Shut up and sit down. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. This is your host, Matt McKenna. Once again, I am not going to be joined by my co-host, John Lancaster. He's still out on official business, uh, rest assured, spreading the anti-imperialist message. However, I am fortunate enough to be joined by journalist Kevin Gostola. Kevin is a journalist at Shadowproof. He is the host of the show Dissenter Weekly, and he is the co-host of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast with Ronnie Akalik. Additionally, he is one of the best journalists covering the Julian Assange case and more broadly whistleblowers in general. So we really wanted to get him on the show because, again, he is one of the leading voices on this. Kevin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So... To start, we always like to get a little bit of an introduction, like who you are, uh, and specifically what drew you to become so interested in issues of national security that you report on so much, and very specifically, why are you so interested in the plight of whistleblowers in general, and then specifically Julian Assange case? Yeah, so I started following what's been unfolding with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks by focusing on Chelsea Manning's case when she was charged with being the one who committed the leak, uh, provided the information to WikiLeaks. And I followed her tremendous courage and stuck very closely to covering her court-martial as it unfolded in 2012 and 2013. And I have to say that I owe my career, at least the start of it, to putting out stories that dived into the U.S. diplomatic cables that were released by Chelsea Manning and then published by WikiLeaks. Those cables from the end of November, those last few days in November 2010, all the way into 2011 until they had the fiasco happened where they ended up having to post the entire archive and they couldn't release them the way they wanted to any longer. I was digging through those sets of cables that they were putting out and I was putting together these independent stories I realized people were really hungry for. They liked knowing these new revelations about what the U.S. government had been up to and and, it, and, and and for your show, it's particularly relevant because those cables gave us the clearest picture to date of how U.S. empire works through our State Department and what that diplomatic core of individuals is doing. And, um, you know, it isn't just diplomacy to prevent war. It's diplomacy to advance the interests of U.S. corporations, it's diplomacy to uh, further sometimes the sales of arms and uh, other military equipment, it's uh, to uh, thwart democratic movements and uprisings in some of these countries, it's to help authoritarians or sometimes dictators who are cozy allies of the U.S. beat back people who are threatening their rule. Um, It's to suppress, um, often it's ideologically aimed at suppressing the left, if we're talking about Latin American countries. Uh, So 
I was really into these cables and I feel like the response to them made it so I had a kind of debt that I had to uh, repay to Chelsea Manning as she was targeted and was prosecuted so aggressively. It was very clear to me that this was a natural place for me to go next with my coverage to follow her case. I was an intern at the Nation magazine and had some time where I get to I got to be in a newsroom and I, I was there while WikiLeaks was really front and center in like every single day there were new headlines about what the organization was doing. Uh, and at that time, you know, there, there was a case that they were trying to bring against Julian Assange related to um, Sweden. Sweden was pursuing him for criminal offenses. And, and so this was something that I could not abandon. I kept going with it. And then through Chelsea Manning, I was introduced to this full universe of issues related to the war on whistleblowers by President Barack Obama's administration. And then from that onward, I didn't really give Julian Assange's case a whole lot of attention or as much attention as I probably should have until he was thrown out of the embassy, uh, the Ecuadorian embassy in London in, in April of, uh, of 2019. But um, I, I never was opposed to him and I never really believe, I never really fell for a lot of the liberal conventional wisdom that he had somehow betrayed uh, the United States and became some kind of a like Russian asset who was out to undermine democracy. And I never really have seen him as an anti-American figure. I've seen him as a, a dissident journalist who is not beholden to the partisan politics of our United States, which frees him up to make those kinds of considerations that are based upon how you might understand power or, or how he understands power in the United States. That's what frees him to make these calculations, whether they're wrong, and I think they proved to maybe be incorrect, but they were not necessarily that faulty at the time, but that's how he could look at Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump and, and make these calculations about who would serve him better if they were elected and you know why he would say certain things, why he would be more against Hillary Clinton, given her history of promoting U.S. empire. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of different issues I just threw out there. But to answer your question, I have been following this ever since the disclosures were made by WikiLeaks of these of these documents. And it, and it really... Um, I, I owe a lot of my career to the work that WikiLeaks did and the risks that whistleblowers like Chelsea Manning have taken. Right. Thank you for mentioning that you got your start into this during the Obama administration, because I think a lot of people who listen to the show, my, myself included, became more radicalized. And when I say radicalized, I mean drifting left from being kind of a, a regular liberal. Uh, during the Obama administration, because I had a roommate who followed this stuff, uh, much more closely than I did. And he was telling me, like, yeah, Barack Obama is prosecuting whistleblowers more than any other president uh, that preceded him. You know, between the Chelsea Manning case, the John Kiriakou case, the, the Edward Snowden case, of course. And, and we'll get into the specifics of how, what exactly the Obama administration did in pursuit of Julian Assange. But that should, that was a huge eye-opener for me. And 
Man, you mentioned Chelsea Manning, uh, one of the greatest heroes in American history, and I, I think we should definitely get into some of what Chelsea Manning actually revealed, and we'll get into some of those specifics. But just before we move forward, let's. not everyone is going to be so familiar with this history, so can we get a, a basic overview of how did WikiLeaks form in general? How did they differ from other news outlets? And then if you if you can speak to the fact that WikiLeaks is highly controversial. They have a lot of enemies, but are WikiLeaks revelations ever seriously challenged? Like in terms of the veracity of the claims, it seems like from my point of view, they're basically just reprinting the actual communications of powerful people. So it's hard to even doubt uh, what they're saying, is, what they're putting out is accurate. But yeah, again, can you speak to those things? How did WikiLeaks form? How, how are they different from other news outlets? And is there any doubt that what they're putting out is extremely accurate? Yeah, the important thing for people listening to our conversation to take away is that WikiLeaks was formed with the intention of being one of, if not the first, stateless news media organizations in the world. And by doing so, by, by not really claiming any kind of address, the idea was that they would be able to avoid the kind of future that we have seen where uh, you know they have been entangled in cases, but also they thought that they would be able to shut down uh, or they would be able to avoid any kind of efforts to suppress their publication. So what that means is like with by being stateless, there's no country that could come to them and say, you can't publish this information because they didn't have the right to come and demand that because they didn't claim any country as their home base. Um, they had done some work seriously from within Iceland and uh, have been associated with Iceland in the past. Uh, a lot of the disclosures we're talking about, I believe, uh, the, the work on them, they were in Iceland. There's been some work done uh, in the UK. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there's obviously some connections to Germany with some of the people involved in, in WikiLeaks. So mostly we're talking about people um, doing this work in and around Europe and uh, Scandinavia. And this, this work, the whole idea was to create an anonymous submission system so that sources or whistleblowers, however you want to view them, could provide documents to WikiLeaks and the people in the organization would not know who that person was. Their identity could be protected. And then they would have to do the, the work of authenticating the documents on their own. And as they went through the material and figured out if those documents were authentic, then they could begin to uh, work with those. Uh, they could, they could, they could curate the documents, but more than anything, they wanted to do something called scientific journalism, where they put out the entire set of, of data or the entire set of documents rather than like what the New York Times or the Washington Post would do. And I'm actually not criticizing this in a negative sense, more to just say that in journalistic history up until WikiLeaks, the culture was that these are my materials as a journalist. They're private. I use them to inform my report, but I'm going to publish this report. Let's say it's about, for example, 
what the CIA knew about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and how there weren't any. Let's say that was the story I was working on. And I've got primary source documents about that. I would write the report telling you what I learned from my sources, what I learned from my sources about CIA and how they were fabricating intelligence about Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. And you would never get to see the documents that I used to make that report. But what WikiLeaks said was, we are going to put these primary source documents online. So not only are news organizations going to report on them, but you'll be able to look at them yourself and you'll be able to judge and you'll be able to decide. And this is kind of, this is a pretty radical thing, actually. You'll be able to decide if those media organizations are telling the truth about those documents. You'll also be able to see it for yourself. If you doubt it, if you think it's so outlandish what we are claiming the CIA was doing, you can, you can read it for yourself. And then you can use these actual documents to show your friends, your family, anyone. You can, you can lobby your government. You can go to your congressman. You can say, this is absolutely out of control. We have to do something about it. You will have these documents at your fingertips. And it'll be more than just what a elite journalist said at an institution. So that was a really big thing for WikiLeaks to do. And in fact, in this day, there are 70 or more organizations that have incorporated this leak submission system into their operation, where they have basically taken on the model of WikiLeaks. And they recognize that this is a powerful way of doing journalism. Now, some of them don't always share those documents, which WikiLeaks has criticized. You know, they've said, why aren't you putting these materials online for the public to dig into so that they can get the full benefit of what you're doing? Um, that's been a huge issue within um, media, people who have this kind of system, but then they're not going all the way in the way that they practice this journalism. But I'll answer your last question and say, there are no examples, no examples, as far as I can tell, of documents that were considered to have had major impact on politics or the world from WikiLeaks that have ever been proven to be forged or fabricated. And every time that they've been put up, these, these whether they're a, they could be sets of emails or they could be these cables or they could be the war log documents that we talk about, it's all been proven to be authentic material. There may be one or two uh, memos or documents that they've had earlier on in like 07 or 08 that were possibly sketchy and, and, and maybe didn't have all the markings and perhaps weren't authentic documents. But, you know, by and large, those materials didn't get the kind of attention of the thing. So the things that people criticize WikiLeaks and might say are forged, they're absolutely false. I mean, there's nothing forged about the Hillary Clinton campaign emails. There's nothing forged about these Vault 7 materials that we'll get into from the CIA. There's nothing related to the Stratfor intelligence firm files, which got some attention. Uh, anything from the last 10 years of significance, it was proven was authentic. Right. And 
I do want to get into some of these revelations because they're so valuable. But I just thought of a question as you were talking just now, and it calls into question this idea of classification, right? So in your work, you come across a lot of cla formerly classified material, right? And I, I just want to know, what is your overall assessment of why does the government classify things, specifically the United States government? Uh, I know what the response would be from a government official. Well, these are things that to keep the American public safe. And you know, if you knew this material, uh, it would be dangerous. It could put people's lives in danger. What is your sense of why the United States government classifies information? Some of the information that remains classified is there because the government does not want to be embarrassed by its release. Or they're involving, they involve programs that they don't want us to know about. You know, for example, um, I'm about to write up, it's received some limited coverage, but I'm about to write up a lawsuit by BuzzFeed journalist Jason Leopold, right. who requested records about payments that the CIA has made to rebel groups in Syria that the U.S. government has armed to fight Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad and his government. And so the, uh, they, they, the CIA glomarred, and when you glomar in a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, you refuse to confirm or deny the existence of the records. But the thing that's an issue there is that Donald Trump was tweeting about the payments. And so BuzzFeed journalist Jason Leopold thought that this meant that they had acknowledged this program. And so the CIA could no longer claim to keep a secret. But this that's a good example of something that our government doesn't want us to have records related to so that we can see what they're doing. And so uh, they they hide it. And even, even though the, uh, there is an executive order on the books that says, you should not keep things classified to prevent the government from being embarrassed. And there's a whole litany of different other other things that says about why you shouldn't keep information classified. But there's no way to really enforce that. I mean, a lot of these agencies are still able to make their own choices about the material. They control it. It's very easy to invoke uh, national security, as you were suggesting, or to claim other things that are related to the everyday business of your agency for why you would want to keep the material classified. Now, I think that you know, high-ranking officials who are representing these agencies, it's impossible for them to keep track of what is classified and unclassified. And we know that to be the case because when they speak about these programs and celebrate them and think that they're the right thing for the government to be doing, they might go on CNN or Fox News or they might be at a forum event before a think tank and they'll talk about it. And they're like, they're effectively leaking that information to a public audience uh, when they, when they discuss some of these operations that were sensitive. But then on the other hand, you have lower ranked officials, say like a Chelsea Manning who reveal this information who are going to be punished and prosecuted. And then these high ranking officials never suffer any consequences because in my view, they don't object to the materials. So the classification system, it's not that it's broken. It's that it's, it, there's just so much information in it at this point that it is just, it, it's, it's like, you can't even take it seriously. The idea that information is classified. 
like that you that may have had meaning 20 or 30 years ago this information is classified but almost anything can be classified now and also if something is released and the government decides that they want it to be classified they can retroactively classify that information in order to stake a claim to it so it's it's rather laughable and it makes it hard to believe when there are things said about the release of classified information that is doing grave damage to the national security, it makes it hard to believe that claim because, um, because there's just so much information. It's, it's not, it's not really a targeted thing anymore. If it was at one point, we're so far beyond the point where people who had the authority to classify information were actually making decisions based on threats. A lot of it is just, to protect the interests of agencies. And WikiLeaks provides a service that was previously unavailable. Like we were able to get classified information in the past, but you'd had to wait like 30, 40, 50 years after the the events that transpired. And I'm thinking of something like the genocide in Indonesia in 1965. Now, years and years later, we find out that the CIA was deeply involved in that. Why should we have to wait 30 years, 40 years, 50 years to know that our government is involved in these kind of violent behaviors? And it, you know, just at a surface level, I'm not as involved in this stuff as you are, but it seems like a really convenient excuse that as your government is misbehaving, performing acts of grand, uh, sorry, mass scale violence, it seems awfully convenient that you can classify anything that would reveal that kind of behavior, illegal behavior, immoral behavior, embarrassing behavior. Well, it's national security. It's, it's it, wow, well, that's exceedingly convenient. So you know, I think we have to question what, what they say is classified and also how leakers are talked about, right? Because we, we, we reserve praise for some leakers, and I'm talking about you know the more centrist critic. We'll, we'll praise uh, uh, someone who leaks a Trump tax return, right? We'll praise, uh, we'll praise leakers from other countries, right? Uh, p- government officials who work for official U.S. enemies that spill information about those countries' governments, right? The whole, the whole Iraq war buildup was largely based on erroneous claims made by Iraqi dissidents. We praise those people, but suddenly we're supposed to believe that people like Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden, John Kiriakou, and Julian Assange are immoral for leaking. Well, what if they were leaking? They did, you know, in Assange's case, he was leaking stuff about other countries. Uh, but mm-hmm. somehow we're not supposed to believe that their work is valuable because they they leaked information about the noble activities of the American CIA. And the contradiction just should be really obvious to people. But thanks for that explanation, Kevin, because that, that classification excuse always bothers me. And... So now we're going to get into some of the specifics. Now, I know there are thousands, if not millions of stories, millions of documents, at least, that have been exposed by WikiLeaks. But I just kind of want to get an overview of some of the biggest stories here. So, of course, we're going to talk about Chelsea Manning, uh, formerly Bradley Manning, when she was a soldier in serving in the Iraq war. She had a crisis of conscience and she had access to these top secret documents, what were called the Iraq war logs and the F- Afghanistan war logs, uh, and she leaked this information to WikiLeaks. Now, I want to talk about these individually, and maybe we can you can pick out whatever you think are the major highlights, but I'm going to go through these individually, and you tell me what is the incredibly important information that was revealed by her exposing this information. So I guess let's start with the Iraq war logs. What was revealed in the Iraq war logs, and why do we need to be concerned about it? 
Yeah, so for me, the Iraq war logs that are... What's important for people to take away from that set is the identification of 15,000 civilian deaths that had not been previously known. That's 15,000 people that had not been in any records. So any of these groups, these organizations that track civilian deaths, some of them that are nonprofit organizations, because of this material, they were able to get a more accurate official count of the casualties. And, and of course, for your listeners, I will acknowledge that even they say that that number is probably still missing tens of thousands of people, but you know, they're they're going off of reporting and they're going after, uh, off of documentation that they can prove without a doubt these people are dead and they were able to add 15,000 people to this. Uh, there was There's evidence of torture that was in the Iraq war logs. And what we found out is that, and General David Petraeus was implicated in this conduct, that there was something called Frago 242. It was an order that essentially said to people who were U.S. soldiers or part of the coalition forces that are deployed in Iraq, that if they knew that Iraqi forces were engaged in torture, they were to look the other way and not do anything to stop it, and it wasn't to be investigated. It was basically to be out of sight, out of mind. And so what that meant is that the U.S. military although I believe that there were torturing people themselves, that there were interrogations that were brutal. But what it meant is that they were consciously outsourcing torture to Iraqi military forces or Iraqi security forces in order to do the kinds of, commit the kind of acts of brutality that they didn't think they could get away with. Uh, they were using this, this essentially terrorism in order to put out the insurgency in Iraq, and and that's and that's what we learned. And um, you know, Chelsea actually had firsthand experience with some of with Nuri Al Maliki's government when she was there. You know, she saw that as she was looking into this political dissident who was uh, arrested and targeted that in fact he was being targeted because of a kind of political manifesto that had been written out and then she translated it this this thing and she realized this is not a terrorist sympathizer this is somebody who has grievances against the iraqi government that we've appointed to run iraq and so um that was separate that was not really in the iraq war logs i'm just giving some extra context here to why she gave these Iraq war logs so much weight, why it mattered so much to her for us to see these documents. Right, and you pointed to the the act of torture. And, you know, we had someone on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. His name is Daryl Lee, and he's great. He writes about U.S. empire. And he, he brought up the point to us that I think a lot of people don't realize. So, like, we on the podcast, we've talked a lot about U.S. invasions or CIA activities, but... That's actually a very small portion of, even though it's they're tragic. That's a small portion of what empire means. It, it also being an empire means that 
the United States forces, the United States citizens don't actually have to take part in the actual behavior of empire. So that's a great example. So the Iraqi government that is subservient to the United States, the United States exports the acti you know activities like torture to the Iraqi government. And and so the United States maybe their hands are pretty dirty, but they're not as dirty as the Iraqi hands and Chelsea Manning exposed that yeah, actually, the, the United States and, and personnel knew full well that this was going on and likely encouraged it or at least didn't stop it from happening. And I also want to talk about the Iraq war deaths. You said 15,000 and uh, extra deaths. This contradicts what we had heard at the beginning of the war, right? Uh, we heard that we don't do body counts. The high-ranking officials were saying that at the beginning of the war. And and also it calls into attention that we— Well, actually, can I so, so this was done by a project called a rock body count, and and the U.S. government, you're right, is actually they're they're not tallying. They deliberately do not tally civilian casualties, so they don't have to be, so they can never be held accountable for the number of deaths. But what what it means is that there, as an outside organization, that went through each of these war logs and they were adding up each of the instances in which there was a, uh, it would say KIA, so like killed in action or sometimes it would be EKIA, which is enemy killed in action. Um, and so if it, if it said EKIA, they probably wouldn't include it because they would accept that it was probably a, a militant or somebody involved. But when we're talking about civilian deaths, these are people who could go through checkpoints and they'd be executed when they go through the checkpoint, things of that nature. So, the, so anyways, I just wanted to make it clear that these were tallies that were done independently I think it might be true that the U.S. government isn't keeping track, but that's in the same vein that they don't that we don't have a database in the United States for police killings, just so that they never have to be responsible for the scale of people who are being murdered by police forces in the United States. Right, and whatever number the U.S. government gives us in terms of Iraqis killed or Afghans killed or, or Vietnamese killed, if you want to go back a few decades, you can bet that that number is significantly higher, right? We keep track of every single U.S. soldier that was killed in the war on terror and all our wars, but we do not even have a close estimate as to how many Iraqis have been killed. And I do follow a Iraq body count. There's also the Lancet study, uh, the Johns Hopkins studies. Uh, and the, these numbers fluctuate quite a bit, right? You have the cost of war study. You know, it's any, yeah. as far as I can tell, there's no consensus as to how many civilians were killed in Iraq. It's anywhere from like 250,000 to 2 million. And the, these are the numbers that we have. And I'm inclined just because I know that our own government doesn't conduct these kinds of uh, accounting, that it's likely closer to 2 million than it is to 200,000. And the other thing mm -hmm. that, that I'll say about that is that as long as we're not counting bodies of people being killed, we have to understand that it's just part and parcel of this this system where where people around the world understand that their lives are trivialized, right? That you know Osama bin Laden wanted to prove to Muslims that the United States is at war with Muslims. Well, what what shows that more than a government that slaughters your people and then doesn't even bother bother to account for the killing? And then the last thing you said, I know I hate to get so nitty gritty on this, but even the enemies killed in action, right? So we know that even that's kind of a fuzzy figure, right? We know that, the, you know, if you're a male from age 16 to, I don't know, 70, they'll count you as an enemy killed in, in action unless otherwise disproven. So, you know, in and in the case of Iraq, they'll probably count uh, former soldiers who were serving under Saddam's, Saddam Hussein's army, often conscripts or, you know, how much, 
how much are we splitting hairs then between enemies killed in actions and civilians? So, you know, lot to yeah. think about with the Iraq war logs. And not least of all, we didn't even mention the collateral murder video, which uh, was significant for a lot of reasons. And, it, and people can watch this. It's extremely disturbing. But one of the parts of Chelsea Manning's uh, Iraq war log leaks was this horrible video of soldiers, I would say almost gleefully gunning down civilians, including two Reuters journalists in, uh, in East Baghdad. And part this was extremely significant. This was kind of the highlight of the entire Iraq war logs. That if people want to understand the, the depravity of what this war was, it can, really can be symbolized by that one video. But Kevin, I, I know we got a lot to talk about here. So we also, of course, have the Afghan war logs. So can you give us some of the highlights of what was revealed from the Afghan war logs? Yeah, so uh, I'm, just, I'm going back to some of my coverage that I, I did documenting these and Oh, by the way, last year was the was was the tenth anniversary for a lot of, of this. And just to be clear with people who are listening, um, when we're talking about these sets of documents, this is what Julian Assange is facing charges for. He's facing charges for publishing the war logs, the cables. Uh, we're going to get to the Guantanamo files, and then. Um, and then there's there's some um, rules of engagement documents that are not really that important, but they're they're there um, partially uh, to prove. Uh, I mean, this is a whole separate discussion, but they're there partially to help the government advance their conspiracy theory about how Julian Assange recruited Chelsea Manning to help him get these documents. So. In the Afghanistan war logs, there was an assassination squad that was called Task Force 373. And I uh, want people to remember that when we're talking about this, this is like in the beginning of these kinds of killer capture teams proliferating. Think of like Gen uh, General Stanley McChrystal. Think of these night raids that we have heard about that are hallmarks of warfare in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, and so so that was that was something that was ongoing. Um, it had details that were related to the CIA's expansion of paramilitary operations. It even mentioned it was really early on in the development of technology for U.S. drones, and of course, it's gotten a lot better at this point. But there was documentation about how the drones that the U.S. was using were using were prone to failure. Um, there was a classified list of enemies that was disclosed. Um, and there's a horrific example. Um, I'll just, I'll just read this for you that I, that I, I mentioned in here that, uh, on June 17th, 2007, a mission was undertaken to kill a prominent Al Qaeda functionary who was known as Abu Laith Alibi. The squad staked out a Quran school where he was believed to be located for several days. An attack was ordered. The squad ended up killing seven children with five American rockets. Alibi was not killed. So there you get a clear example of an attack that resulted in civilian casualties and didn't even get the target that they were going after, something that the U.S. government would want to keep covered up. So what's important for everyone to know here is that you know, this is journalism. WikiLeaks working on the Afghanistan war logs 
was partnered up with the New York Times, The Guardian, and Der Spiegel in Germany. Der Spiegel did some really excellent reporting on this, and I guess I elevate them because for the most part, Der Spiegel has always shined in refraining from the kind of public mobbing against Julian Assange that has been engaged in by The Guardian and The New York Times. And uh, the, there's actually a journalist who has a past affiliation with Der Spiegel who testified at Julian Assange's extradition trial. So I always give them more credit and more um, of what they're due for the work that they've done on these materials. Uh, and so I thought that the Der Spiegel reporting, their coverage on this assassination squad was exceptional. And for anyone who wants to dig into this stuff and, and look at it in deeper detail, uh, that's where I would recommend going. Yeah, and the counterterrorism operations, these kind of night raids, the the funding and arming of militias by the CIA, that hasn't stopped. You know, the Intercept maybe three months ago put out an article about how CIA funded death squads were still killing children at these religious schools. By dozens of of children have been killed by these CIA armed militias, and you know, I hate to get too far off topic, but again, we always try to like relate empire overseas to empire at home and right so we talk about night raids where people are being terrorized in iraq and afghanistan these you know no-knock raids that we hear so much about in the united states which are horrible which disproportionately target african-americans disproportionately target poor people where people are killed people's dogs are killed uh people are made to fear for their lives uh, you know their their privacy of course invaded this was going on on a nightly basis in afghanistan and iraq and uh, and so much of that is contributes to the value of what Chelsea Manning revealed and what WikiLeaks and Julian Assange published. And, and the, the idea that anyone would not want to know that our government was doing this, is it's just a willful ignorance. It's almost, I brought this up before, but the people who are against WikiLeaks and against leakers more broadly, it's like, I don't know if you're a Simpsons fan, but uh, there's an episode where... Uh, they're complaining about that Lisa had found this angel and she's trying to prove that the angel's not real. And Flanders says something like, science is like uh, a book that uh, when you, a book that ruins the end of a movie and uh, before you get to see it yourself. And he says something to the effect of, well, I say there's some things we don't want to know, important things. And it's just this desire to be kept in the dark about these these horrible acts that I just don't understand. But... Moving on, Kevin, because, again, there are thousands of stories that WikiLeaks revealed, and we only have time for a few of them, so we're, we're just going through the highlights. But there's also the State Department cables, also revealed by Chelsea Manning. And this was incredibly revelatory as to how our State Department functions, and as you mentioned earlier, how it pertains to the U.S. empire, to the subjugation of people around the world. So can you speak to the highlights of the State Department cables? The biggest thing about the cables in general to understand is that if you want to understand, if you want to recognize the sheer hypocrisy of journalists at U.S. media institutions, look no further than these documents, which anyone working on U.S. foreign policy for the last decade, whenever something happened, actually take, for example, Trump's administration, the assassination of Soleimani. In, uh, or in Iran, this general, he was in the U.S. cables. So what did outlets like the Washington Post do immediately when he was killed? They went and looked up his name in the cables to find any relevant information on 
his background and, and what the U.S. knew about him in relation to this assassination. So uh, these institutions that, you know, their editorial boards or their editors are against the prosecution of Assange. But at the same time, they have engaged in character assassination, things like, oh, Julian Assange is not a journalist. Oh, we think WikiLeaks is not journalism. And, at this, and, and simultaneously, they're using these diplomatic cables to further their own coverage of foreign policy. And some revelations that I think are really important, I, I have this list that I pull out just, just so I'm not scratching my brain and, and dragging this on. Um, I have this concise list here of some of the ones that I think are the best, which is first off that, well, I'll talk about this one in a little more depth and then the rest of the ones I'll just let stand. But one of the more critical things that I think that we learned from these cables, which were a focus of the extradition trial, as Assange's legal team used, mentioned this a lot in order to show that what he was doing was not a crime. The cables contained evidence of the U.S. government interfering in prosecutions that the Spanish government or the German government were planning to do of people in the U.S. military or in the CIA who were implicated in torture and renditions. And that was a big deal, um, especially as it related to one person, uh, Khaled El-Masri, who was a target of the CIA, who ended up winning a major case before the European Court of Human Rights, where Macedonia was forced to compensate him for what he went through. Um, he was a German man, but he was rounded up he was in Macedonia at the time and was um, was abducted by the CIA. So uh, we have uh, evidence from the cables that the United Kingdom was sidestepping a ban on housing cluster bombs and allowed the United States to bring them onto British soil. We have that the U.S. was spying um, and engaged in threats to control the outcome of the climate conference in Copenhagen. We have that the Vatican was actively covering up sex abuse cases in Ireland. We have that Shell Oil had infiltrated all levels of Nigeria's government. We have that the UK trained death squads in Bangladesh. We have that the State Department ordered U.S. diplomats to spy on U.N. leaders. I uh, remember this one. This was particularly... Uh, tied to Hillary Clinton because it came out of her office and it was asking people to collect biometric data on even uh, people like Ban Ki-moon, who was the UN Secretary General at the time. Dynacore contractors were hiring Afghan dancing boys. This, this really obscene, crude thing that was going on with contractors um, in the war zone. And then Yemen President Ali Abdullah Saleh had agreed to help the United States cover up an airstrike that killed 21 children. And this is a really big cable to me. This is one that I'll never forget, where Saleh is basically, I believe it was Petraeus, um, was, was saying that, you know, we'll agree to tell the world that those bombs are our bombs and cover up your drone strikes. That was what the cable was revealing, that we would be able to engage in drone strikes or any kind of airstrikes 
and we would have cover from the Yemen government who would say they were doing that themselves. So, I mean, this is, those were incredible. And then I want people to not forget that we had so many cables from Northern Africa that were responsible for fueling the Arab Spring that had the corruption in Tunisia that showed that the FBI was training secret police in Egypt that uh, revealed uh, details related to that that were that, that were definitely huge. And I'll, I'll close by just saying that the thing I find so remarkable about the release of the cables and, and why it's infuriating what happened in August and September of 2011 when hundreds of thousands of cables spilled out that they didn't get to do anything with because of uh, the fact that um, Guardian... Uh, David Lee, Guardian editor David Lee, published as the chapter the password for the cables so they all were now jeopardized and no longer secure and they could not be taken care of properly. Uh, he stupidly made that decision just so that he could, it could help him sell his book, I suppose. I don't know what he was thinking. Obviously, he wasn't thinking very much. Uh, and the thing I think that is important about the cables is that for each country, there was a partnership made with media in that country to cover those country-specific cables in order so that the release of this information could have the highest impact and produce a, 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 a reaction that would force politicians in that country to respond and even consider holding hearings and possibly adopting reforms to prevent this corrupt behavior from happening again, or to encourage them to stand up to the U.S. government and no longer allow themselves to be pushed around by the U.S. diplomatic teams. Yeah, and that's just a small sample of what was revealed in those cables. Uh, Kevin, can you correct me if I'm wrong? Was was one of the emails released in the in that uh, dossier dump? Was it a document dump? I should say. Was it one of those emails from Jake Sullivan to Hillary Clinton affirming that Al-Qaeda was a part of the main fighting force in Syria, or am I thinking of another uh, leak? Well, yeah, so that would have been the Podesta emails in 2016. Uh, there's, there, there's, there's some inf important emails in there along with other material. But uh, just to point out that that information is not actually any part of the criminal case against Julian Assange. Right. Hold off on that because I do want to talk like that. That is a huge problem is that people don't even understand what Julian is being charged with. And that, and they jump to conclusions about should he serve time or not. And, they, and then they don't even know what he's being charged with. And last thing about the cables, because you mentioned the situation with the former dictator of Yemen, uh, Saleh, and... That is an especially damning one because it's it's almost like he's sloppy when he when he's being like he literally says we'll say your bombs are you'll we'll say our bo your bombs are our bombs and it's it, that's not the exact phrase but it really is like a very sloppy way of phrasing it especially you know when it's being recorded so what I want to say is that that story is especially disturbing because if you see the documentary Jeremy Scahill made it's called Dirty Wars Ew. he talks about this horrific incident in the very beginning of Obama's time in office where it's the Al-Majala massacre where 
I think it's something like 45 civilians were killed by yep. a U.S. missile. And for the longest time, people believed that this was just the Yemeni government targeting uh, alleged al-Qaeda fighters within Yemen. But in reality, it was the U.S. targeting al-Qaeda fighters, targeting you know, maybe there were al-Qaeda fighters there, but there certainly were a lot of civilians that were killed. And this story is even more horrible past WikiLeaks revelations when you find out that there was a journalist, a Yemeni journalist, Abdullah Leila Haidershaya, I think his name is. Yep, yeah. Uh, and he, he's the person who revealed a lot of this. And he was jailed by Salah. And he was for doing reporting, basically, for doing journalism. And to, to just show people like how against good journalism, uh, against uh, a free press Barack Obama was, when he was going to be released, the journalist, Abdullah Leila Haidershaya, Obama personally called the dictator of Yemen to have him kept in prison for longer. And if you don't read Jeremy Scahill's work on this, or you don't re read people like you, Kevin, your work on this, this just kind of goes unsaid and unspoken about. And I don't even know where that journalist is today. Hopefully, I assume he's out of prison. I think he was released. I think he was released. But you know, th this stuff, it has repercussions. The 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 covering up of these massacres uh, and the, its implications for press freedom, both with WikiLeaks and with journalists on the ground trying to cover it, are humongous and extremely disturbing. But we do have, I do want to move us along here. So thank you for that information about the State Department cables. But we're not even done with the biggest uh, Chelsea Manning leaks, right? So we have the Guantanamo files as well. Guantanamo files was Chelsea Manning as well, right? That was one of her leaks. Yeah, yeah. And and it's part of the case against Julian Assange. It's part of why they're criminalizing him. Great. So can you talk about what the Guantanamo files revealed? Of course, Guantanamo, we're talking about the Guantanamo Bay prison. Most people will probably be familiar with what Guantanamo Bay prison is. But what exactly was revealed by Chelsea Manning with these particular leaks? Yeah, so the disclosures were individual files on each of the nearly 800 prisoners that were brought to the Guantanamo Bay military prison. And it contained the, this is essentially the intelligence assessment of Joint Task Force Guantanamo about each of these people. And also, you know, what we, what we have is, um, make sure I get his name right. Uh, I believe... One of the things that was really important to me, yeah, was that it contained the file on Samuel Hajj, who was a Sudanese journalist for the Al Jazeera network, who was uh, rounded up and brought to Guantanamo as uh, a prisoner. And uh, so each of these files, now, now the thing that was uh, incredible about the documents that were revealed and a great resource for understanding these files. And he also provided testimony in the Assange extradition trial is Andy Worthington, mm -hmm. who is based in the United Kingdom. And he has done tremendous work looking into who these people are that our government has held. And he continues today to stick with it, to follow these people who we can call forever war prisoners and that they aren't charged with any crimes they're just held there indefinitely without charge or trial. I'm not talking about the 9-11 terrorism suspects who 20 years later, we still can't find a way to complete their trial, which is its own 
catastrophe own um black mark on our country but the other fact is that there are these people there who are basically not able to go back but they aren't guilty of anything our government won't charge them with any crimes and so what the 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 guantanamo files showed was that there were a small group of individuals who were detained who basically were acting as snitches or were, were, were making up information about people who were detained at the facility so that the the u.s government or the U.S. military in particular, could manufacture pretexts to keep people there in Guantanamo. And so uh, that would help them, that would help them maintain this idea that like they actually had rounded up dangerous men. We should remember in general that Donald Rumsfeld told us all as Secretary of Defense that the worst of the worst were brought to Guantanamo. What we find out is that a lot of these people, was a, it was, uh, you know, one tribe handing over some rival to the U.S. military that they wanted to lop off. It was, you know, a warlord fighting against another. It was someone who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was people who were cattle ranchers. These are farmers. It could be doctors. It might be people who had been involved in combat, but maybe not necessarily combat against the United States. Perhaps they were just fighting militia battles. Uh, definitely not anyone who had been plotting terrorism attacks outside uh, against the United States. Uh, you know, If anything, they might have joined up and engaged in military warfare uh, but uh, that was in the field of combat, and it wasn't. And we have to remember, I think, this important context here that when we talk about these people as terrorists in Guantanamo, we were rounding up people who were engaged in war in a war zone that the United States had created, and then we're saying that people who fought are terrorists, which is now obviously. I don't think the United States would want our soldiers to be prosecuted as terrorists because they were fighting and engaged in violence. Uh, certainly, in our understanding of empire, there are people who would view our use of drones and everything and some of the actions and these night raids and the kind of uh, high, hybrid warfare that we've talked about, that that is terrorism. But... It's, it's, it's interesting to see how empire works here and how U.S. soldiers are not terrorists, but then you can have people who are impoverished Afghans who, because they picked up a gun and were involved in combat, they get treated as terrorists and brought back to the United States, even though they're not engaged in any plots against the United States. And it should be noted that Guantanamo Bay prison is a violation of the Geneva Convention, which the U.S. is party to. And, and I do think it's really important to focus on the fact that a lot of the people who have been through Guantanamo, or maybe some of them are still there, they're, they are innocent of all any crime whatsoever. And a lot of people don't realize the first few months of the Afghanistan war in 2001, it was basically the CIA 
dumping money and weapons, uh, and the money was used to bribe rival factions. Give us, give us somebody, because they had a mandate to to get somebody, right? So it's all these people who basically had the misfortune to be the enemy of somebody who received CIA money. Uh, they would be named as a allegedly a terrorist, and they'd end up in Guantanamo Bay. But I don't want to obscure the fact that maybe there were some actual you know, alleged terrorists in uh, in Guantanamo Bay. But that doesn't fucking matter, right? When it comes down to, are you allowed to detain someone indefinitely? There is, there's international law. Even Nazis were during World War II were given basic prisoner of war rights. And this idea that because this person was engaged in, in a war against the United States they're, and they're not wearing an official uniform as, as German soldiers were in World War II, that they're allowed to be denied all rights, that they can be detained indefinitely, that they can be tortured, that they can, uh, I don't even think their families are allowed to visit them. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and, the, and the Red Cross doesn't have access to these people. Well, you know, I, I don't want to obscure the fact that even the most violent people are entitled to rights. And, you know, we never would accept this in the United States. I and mean, maybe we would with the, the way our criminal justice system works, but it actually doesn't matter the crime that someone is accused of, they're still entitled to a basic level of rights. And, and of course, Chelsea Manning's revelations here realize, makes us realize that none of these people were entitled to even basic standards of due process. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and so I'm incredibly grateful that she revealed that. And I, I do encourage people to read Andy Worthington's work on on Guantanamo Bay if you really want to dig into that particular issue, because you're right, he is great. And moving forward, the, the topic that I actually didn't know much about until listening to people like you and uh, there's a, a Scott Horton, he's been on the show as well, uh, mentioned the Vault 7 leaks of, that, that WikiLeaks put out. Now, this is not one of Chelsea Manning's leaks, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken on that. This is something else that WikiLeaks put out, and this has to do with CIA surveillance. And it really is quite disturbing when you dig into the details here. So can you... Explain to us what exactly the Vault 7 leaks were. I would think about these as offensive cyber warfare tools that the CIA has. And if you listen to the examples uh, of the things I'm going to share here, it's, it, it will remind you of the Edward Snowden documents. It will remind you of what we learned the NSA was capable of doing when it, when it came to planting malware in devices and uh, making it so that certain certain technology was compromised so it would be easy for them to hack into and engage in surveillance uh, globally or, or wherever they wanted to target. And it's important for me to clarify that Julian Assange is not charged in this case with the publication of the Vault 7 materials even though it's the largest ever publication of, of, of this, these kinds of really the most sensitive documents that we could imagine the CIA having. And these are highly, highly guarded classified documents. Sometimes you might hear the euphemism of like the family jewels. I, if you go back to the seventies, when you, you talk about the revelations of the fact that, there was an assassination program that the CIA ran that was part of the family jewels. I mean, I think like today, this kind of thing is highly guarded by the CIA. That being said, uh, the reason why I think it's important for us to talk about Vault 7 is because after this happened in February 2017, 
immediately the CIA decided it needed to avenge this leak by going after Julian Assange. And that was when we saw that everything kicked into overdrive and Mike Pompeo as CIA director was talking about how Julian Assange didn't deserve First Amendment rights, how we needed to not be squeamish about the right to publish anymore for these public disclosure organizations like WikiLeaks. And he was saying we needed to go after Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and any other organization like them that would target the United States or challenge the United States is probably a better word. And what the Vault 7 materials contained uh, if, uh, details of was that the CIA had a fleet of hackers that would target smartphones and computers. They had evidence of a program called Weeping Angel that had made it possible for the CIA to attack Samsung televisions and convert them into spying devices. Another report that was done by CNBC on these files found that the CIA had 14 zero-day exploits, which were basically software vulner vulnerabilities that had not been fixed yet. Uh, the agency used these to hack Apple's iOS devices, such as iPads and iPhones, and the documents showed that the exploits were shared with other organizations, including the National Security Agency and GCHQ, another UK spy agency. And the CIA, this is important, did not tell Apple about the vulnerabilities. So this is why when you look at the NSA disclosures, you look at these disclosures about the CIA, this is why Apple has actually become pretty aggressive about updating its iOS. And it's constantly trying to stay ahead of this. Um, and, 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 you know, th this brought a lot of attention to Apple um, these these disclosures. WikiLeaks also showed that the CIA was targeting Microsoft Windows users, and then as well as Signal and WhatsApp users with mail with malware. So uh, obviously, because these are encrypted chats, uh, we're talking about Signal. They have tried to fearmonger uh, fearmonger and suggest that these, this communication on Signal is going to be between uh, like drug dealers, terrorists, groups, people who are out to do harm to the United States. Uh, they, they really don't like that this is available to us to have some modicum of, of privacy, uh, but it works. And we know it works because they're so frustrated by it and they're constantly trying to disrupt it. It is amazing what people will accept in terms of CIA activities under the guise of keeping us safe, right? So you mentioned the assassination program from the 70s. I assume you meant the, the Phoenix program from Vietnam, or are you talking a more broad program? Well, well yeah, I, mean, I should be referring to trying to, uh, well, the, the assassination that was successfully carried out against Patrice Lumumba and trying to poison and kill Fidel Castro and things of that nature. That was an obvious focus of hearings that were held Right. So, and you know, and you talked about other activities, the the surveillance of American citizens, the the deep violations of our privacy. It's just, it's unbelievable that anyone would accept this as having anything to do with protecting us. I, I mean, this is dictatorship stuff. This is a, this is police state stuff, and it really does illustrate how, again, how empire comes home. 
and it's being used against our own population now. Not that it's any better when it's used against other people around the world, but I think we need to establish that this is not something that just happens overseas. It happens here at home too. Uh, so briefly, I want you, you mentioned this earlier. So we're going to talk about, you know, you mentioned all these amazing revelations, these in, in some cases extremely disturbing but informative revelations, and that they've been extremely valuable. So I'll talk about one, and then I'll let you tee off on the other one. Uh, part of the reason that the United States was not permitted to stay in Iraq in 2011, as I understand, is that the United States wanted to negotiate a status of forces agreement with the Iraqi government, the Iraqi government that the U.S. had installed, that would render U.S. citizens immune from Iraqi prosecution when they committed crimes in the country. And part of the reason that the Iraqi government refused to to continue the U.S occupation of Iraq to allow U.S. soldiers to continue to have bases in Iraq was because of WikiLeaks revelations, uh, most notably, like I mentioned, the collateral murder video. So the U.S. had to leave Iraq in 2011, despite all that talk, well, Obama left Iraq and therefore ISIS formed. Well, no, Obama did not have a choice unless he wanted to continue to violate international law. He didn't have a choice but to leave Iraq in 2011, not to defend Barack Obama at all. And of course, we know that ISIS did not form because Obama left Iraq. ISIS formed because the U.S. funded a proxy war in Syria for three years after, for more than three years after that. But so that tells you how valuable some of these revelations have been. On the on the part of the Arab Spring, though, I, I think that point needs to be dwelled on a little bit. A lot of the motivation for the Arab Spring certainly came out of some of the revelations of WikiLeaks. Can you speak to how valuable WikiLeaks was for fomenting this desire to challenge the the dictators and leadership of some of these uh, Arab authoritarian countries? How was WikiLeaks so instrumental in that? It's not something that I've actually spent a, a whole lot of time on, but what I can say is there's this one cable called Corruption in Tunisia that detailed Ben Ali uh, and, and his government. And I think it was extraordinary for Tunisians to open it up and realized that the U.S. State Department knew all about the extent of the corruption of this family and had allowed it to remain in power. And when you look at these countries at the time, I mean, a lot of these people are no longer there. Uh, and, and of course, now, because of the way that the war completely destabilized, divided, and turned Libya into a fail, failed state, Everything about Muammar Gaddafi is overshadowed by what we've done to destroy Libya. But when you when you look at what these, you know, I think a better way to describe them than just dictators is to say these are strong men, and these are these these are strong men leaders who had maintained power for thirty to forty years in some of these instances. Like these are people who had been there forever and ever, it would seem, if you were living in those countries. And some of those people hadn't ever known a life without those rulers being their, you know, presidents or their, uh, their, their authority figure. And so uh, the fact that the U.S. government would know about what was going on but wouldn't do anything to force a change of power was really disheartening. You know, I think we have to understand that some of the symbolism, it doesn't reach us, 
but it definitely reaches other parts of the world of U.S. being a beacon for freedom and democracy. And when it becomes found out that the U.S. government actually knows that your government is this corrupt, I think that really hurts you as 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 a citizen of these countries. And that's that's part of the backlash. And then to find out that you know the FBI is giving assistance to Egyptian police that are involved in the torture of activists who are involved in challenging that government. So Mubarak, who was running Egypt, who was very brutal in his government, you know, to find out that the FBI or any intelligence agencies in the U.S. were involved in that brutality is something that I think just poured gasoline on the fire when we were talking about the Arab Spring. And I think it was it, it was fascinating to watch the U.S. State Department at that time, again, pretty nearly immediately after these disclosures, like at the same time that WikiLeaks is going through these documents from Chelsea Manning and releasing them. You then have the tinderbox that was these countries just exploding and you you recognize that all of these people so sorry excuse me you you look at the u.s state department and they're claiming that they support these countries but it was all just to save face i mean it's important for people to understand that that this was all to save face that like once the arab spring took on a force of its own that could not be turned back, then you heard from the Obama administration that they were going to support the the countries. But also, I think they were afraid because they don't know where, these uprisings weren't planned. Like, there, they, there were, like, we do have our, like, everyone who listens to your show might have some knowledge of the kind of democracy promotion that we do in countries and how we fund these group. The, we have, like, you know, there's United States International um, Agency, uh, sort of the Agency for International Development, USAID, and there's like the National Endowment for Democracy that will pick groups that it wants to support to uh, be the ones that are the the like kind of activist group on the ground challenging the government, but. Um, I don't think the people in the Arab Spring, those weren't those weren't the winner, those weren't the people the United States was selecting to to take over and, and run those countries. Those people were rising up because they felt outraged and felt a genuine need to to do something to to take on. And um, if you'll permit me, I want to go back and just say something about what you mentioned related to Iraq with the withdrawal oh, yeah, of, our, uh, of, our, of our U.S. forces. Because you might remember that uh, a couple of years ago here, uh, Joe Biden was claiming credit for withdrawing the troops from Iraq. Yeah. And I immediately had to set the record straight. Like, and, and, and as you said, you know, this... This log, this commu- this communications that it was it involved. Um, it was from the United Nations, I believe, or it was from one of the diplomats working for the United Nations, I think, uh, who was detailed to to that. But um, 
as it turns out, uh, okay, so early 2011, we were going to leave a residual force in Iraq past the withdrawal date. There were going to be troops that stayed. So as you're saying, it's important for people to know that CNN reported this, that because there were children who were killed in a raid by U.S. troops um, and that it was not how it had initially been reported. So like they learned the truth. Actually, the initial report was a lie that uh, I think troops actually walked up and executed point blank. These yeah, people. I think is that the, sorry to interrupt you, Kevin, but I think that's the incident where they killed this family, right? Children included. And then I yeah. want to say they blew up the house afterward to cover their tracks. If the, it, it, I think that's the incident you're referring to, but I, I could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, here. So in the cable, which was uh, from Philip Alston, who was the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions, it detailed how American troops approached an Iraqi man's home on March 15, 2006. They handcuffed residents and ex executed all of them. An air raid was then called in to destroy the house. So everyone thought it was just an airstrike that killed the house. But in fact, there were forces there before the house was destroyed iraqi tv stations broadcast from the scene they showed bodies of the victims five children four women in the morgue of tikrit Aut autopsies carried out at the tikrit hospital's morgue revealed all corpses were shot in the head and handcuffed um and so the bush administration had entirely avoided any kind of reckoning related to this brutality this this atrocity and then this is what the government was responding to and one thing the iraqi government has consistently insisted upon if forces are going to remain in iraq is that our troops do not have immunity that they be able to prosecute them if they kill one of their own citizens um and uh and and so since that is a deal breaker obama yanked the u.s troops entirely and it's worth noting that these kinds of status of forces agreements that the United States has with countries that it bases its military in, they're often extremely unequal treaties, right? The U.S. troops enjoy immunity in many countries around the world, and, and they do commit crimes. They kill people. They rape people. They steal things. They commit property destruction. It's one of the driving reasons why there's so much resentment in places like Okinawa and uh, previously in the Philippines toward American troops being based there, aside from the obvious imperial nature of having a foreign government's troops occupying your country. And one last word in the Arab Spring is, from my point of view, uh, from what you were saying, to me, the, the U.S. role in the Arab Spring basically seems like a, a I think, like you mentioned, like it's basically like a PR campaign, right? They look so bad for having supported Mubarak for decades and decades. I think Hillary Clinton was even a personal friend of Hosni Mubarak and his family. And Picture. You know, it, John McCain would go there and take pictures with him, too. Right. And... It's just so it's such an exercise in hypocrisy to believe that the United States was playing a positive role in the Arab Spring. Well, we're going to support the rebels in Libya and Syria, even though the U.S. helped crush the the 
the Arab Spring movements in Yemen and Bahrain and to a lesser extent in Egypt and of course supported the when Sisi took power in Egypt a year later they were entirely supportive of it so to believe that the United States cared about the freedom of people in the in the Arab world is just it's just such an exercise in deny uh, in denying what the evidence actually is so thanks for for explaining that and now we're getting into the nitty-gritty, and I, Kevin, I do want to be respectful of your time. Do you have 25 more minutes or so? Yeah, yeah. No, and we can go into this, and some of these I think will be, um, and obviously you don't have to include this in your show, but it's just to tell you, I, I think they might not be as long of, a, of an answer as, uh, as some of this other stuff, because these, you know, these sets of documents we're talking about, it's just, I mean, you could... You could do like documentary series on each of these sets of documents yeah, and that, stuff. It's just, there's so much material. It's just incredible. I still don't feel like we even understand fully the diplomatic cables even today, um, even though there's been a lot done on them. Yeah. Um, ben Norton, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago, recommended there's a book by Verso that kind of summarize oh, yeah. some of the WikiLeaks findings. And I'm going to have to get yeah. my hands on that. But like, like so you the said, world these, of- Sorry, it's, go the, ahead. it's like uh, it's uh, it's um, the world according to U.S. Empire, which is about the cables. Great. So we'll, we'll definitely have to plug that. And another thing to consider is you mentioned that horrible incident where the family was killed in Iraq. Again, these are only the recorded incidents, right? The ones that we have been recorded and then subsequently leaked. We're, if you paint a larger picture, these kinds of incidents were very likely happening all the time. And I don't know if it's going to take 20, 30, 40 years like – you know, Nick Terse is writing about the Vietnam War and all the massacres that occurred that were never known about before in his famous book, Kill Anything That Moves. What are we going to learn in 20, 30, 40 years that hasn't even been covered by WikiLeaks yet? And we're going to learn about the true brutal nature of this war that the United States uh, waged on the Iraqi people. And so so moving on, I, I I do want to get into like what Julian Assange is going through right now, what he's being charged with, what this trial has been all about so it's because it's not everything that we just talked about uh so a lot of people seem to believe that julian assange is being prosecuted because he's a whistleblower himself and yes he is but he his case is a little different than cases of other people that have been prosecuted and i'm going to keep naming these people because i don't want to make it out like we don't support these particular individuals they're all heroes in their own right but how is julian's case different than say Chelsea Manning's case, Daniel Hell, John Daniel Hale, John Cariaco, Reality Winner, Edward Snowden, and, and so on. Uh, his case is, is a bit unique in that in several ways. So can can you please speak to that? Well, the most important thing is that it shows and confirms what were a lot of our fears, which is the war on whistleblowers is a war on journalism. It's not just going after people who are former government officials or, or people who were lower level uh, individuals in the U.S. military or in government. I mean, it, it is a target. It, it's the targeting of journalism. It's an attack on press freedom. And a lot of us had struggled to convince people that the prosecutions under the Espionage Act of these people, like uh, John Kiriakou, uh, like Thomas Drake's a famous NSA whistleblower. Uh, people back then, we, we tried to point out, like, this is an attack on journalism. And most people in media is kind of like thinking 
it could never really be. No, they're just they're just going after people in government. That's the unspoken rule. The unspoken rule was that it's going to stop there. They're not going to go after the journalists. They'll only prosecute the leaker. And then, and then we saw uh, a case that I don't want us to forget on our way to Julian Assange, which involved uh, Stephen Kim, who published, who, who who leaked to a Fox News reporter named James Rosen. information related to what the U.S. government knew about North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And he was mentioned in the affidavit as an aider, a better, and co-conspirator of a leak. And again, I know what you all are thinking if you listen to the show. Why should I care about a Fox News reporter who's working on this? You know, I don't think that what they do is journalism and you know obviously the story was intended to reinforce u.s empire's handling of north korea but i think that's the most important thing of it all is that he was doing work that the united states government should support i mean he was he was suggesting that uh that that like oh my the there's been a security lapse so there's been a lapse in our military in the way that we handle north korea and then uh, he ended up being demonized in this affidavit, or sorry, it's the appropriate word is criminalized in this affidavit, along with Stephen Kim, who was prosecuted and did get prison time for this leak for talking to a journalist. And then we have Julian Assange come along. And that, that case, there's a lot of stuff before it, but, but with Julian Assange, now they are go the, the Trump administration looked at the revelations, they looked at all the documents that we talked about in this podcast episode, and they said that that that's a crime to publish that information. And they also accused him of helping Chelsea Manning to crack a password um, in have they have absolutely no evidence to support this. And but what has been clear to all the organizations that follow these issues, the, the, the reputable organizations like Reporters Without Borders, uh, who have done tremendous work, Amnesty International, and you know some of these organizations I do sometimes have bones to pick with when they, uh, are, 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 they, they, they fail to be strong on some of the things that US Empire does. But on this, They have been clear in their opposition to prosecuting Assange because they recognize that they recognize that the U.S. government is criminalizing standard news gathering practices that people employ every day. And, you know, things that are, in my view, source protection, like if you want to help your source not get caught while they are leaking to you. Are you aiding and abetting a criminal or are you simply doing what all journalists have been doing in the history of news, um, going back to at least as far as the as a Watergate scandal and, and be before when you knew that, you know, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI has his goons that could be watching you or you knew that Richard Nixon 
um, was willing to authorize dirty tricks to come after journalists. So you're going to take it upon yourself to protect your sources so that they aren't found. I mean, Daniel Ellsberg being the textbook case of a whistleblower who had to go on the run, who had to uh, covertly make Xerox copies of thousands upon thousands of pages of the Pentagon Papers in order to make sure that got out. Um, are the journalists at the New York Times guilty of helping Daniel Ellsberg? Um, are, are, should, should they be prosecuted just like Julian Assange? I mean, obviously, uh, Neil Sheehan is dead now, so he can't be put on trial. But my point is that retroactively, should there have been some kind of case i mean that's what the government is saying here while by going after julian assange that people who work on leaks and engage in this work are to be prosecuted right and there seems to be this belief that there is an anointed class of journalists right you have to work for an official publication you know you have to work for the new york times or the washington post or the wall street journal and therefore julian assange is not a journalist but what is Julian Assange doing that's, that, again, the New York Times was not engaged in when they published the Pentagon Papers? And for those who don't know, the Pentagon Papers are, very long story short, it reveals that the United States had been lying about its role in Vietnam, that they knew the war couldn't be won. And the New York Times and Washington Post, to their credit, published it. And, you know, and I say to their credit because it's not always been the case. You, you, you know, again, this is a story that people can research more, but we know from... James Risen, former New York Times journalist, I think he works for The Intercept now, he revealed that the New York Times refused to publish, publish stories that were embarrassing to the Bush administration, uh, stories regarding the Bush administration's surveillance of the domestic population. So, And they would like check in with the Bush administration to make sure it's okay to publish classified material. Well, to me, that strikes as being antithetical to good journalism. You don't check with the people in charge if it's okay to publish stories. What's the point of the fourth estate? It's a check on power, not to serve power. And so you mentioned a couple of things there. You mentioned that Julian Assange is a publisher, right? So he's a publisher and that, that's why this case is especially dangerous. And you know, where people get hung up as a, a number of issues, they get hung up on Julian Assange's personality. I don't know Julian Assange personally, but there are allegations that he's, he's abrasive. I don't really care about any of that. Uh, but another thing is, you know, you know, like, why do we care about what his personality is? That's such a stupid thing to focus on. But the other thing is that people seem to th conflate this case, especially people who are liberals or Democrats. They seem to think that this case has anything to do with Trump's election. I think it might have something to do with Trump famously said during his campaign, thank God for WikiLeaks. You know, he wanted, he wanted WikiLeaks to help him out more, publish more of Hillary's emails. Even though Trump was worse on pursuing Assange than even Obama was, right? He persecuted Assange even more. But people have this idea that because Assange and WikiLeaks published the DNC, the, the Podesta emails, that somehow... Julian Assange was responsible for Trump's election. So just, you know, I know you mentioned this briefly, but just to be clear, 
Can you talk about how this persecution, this prosecution of Julian Assange, this attempt to extradite Julian Assange, has not a goddamn thing to do with the DNC leaks, uh, the alleged DNC hack. It has nothing to do with Russia. It has nothing to do with those things. And it has everything to do with those horrible stories that you mentioned earlier in the Iraq and Afghan war logs. Yeah, and, and, and first off, let me, let me just be clear here that uh, we, we, we get fixated on what to call Julian Assange. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. It shows you how propaganda works from both the U.S. government, these national security agencies, as well as our media institutions, that we would spend so much time trying to figure out, well, what is he? What do we call him? How would you refer to that person? And it actually doesn't matter. As you say, it doesn't matter. But I will say, in the interest of not adding to the public mobbing, that Julian Assange is a journalist. And I don't think I don't think he's the source. I don't think he's a whistleblower. I don't think he's a leaker. I don't think he's any of those things, because if I thought that he was those things, then he might be more open to being... Uh, targeted by the Espionage Act, given the history of this law and how it's been applied. But clearly, none of these documents originate with Julian Assange. He did not work for the U.S. government, so he can't be a leaker. I've always been confused by how people refer to Julian Assange in the media loosely as a leaker. He's He can't be. It's not even logical. It, it has to be that he's a journalist who obtained the documents. But these elite institutions do this so that they don't have to call him what he is, so that they can create this odd, bizarre distance from him. Like, he's not like us. He's completely different from what we do. Well, no, he's not. And the fact that you're doing this is actually making your future risky. That, like, this could happen to you because you're creating this delusion that he's somehow different from people who work at the New York Times or the Washington Post or, or, or at CNN. Um, so your question that you asked about the Podesta emails in CNN, liberals have become very fixated on this in the last four years. Um, but I would say that uh, it's important for everyone to recognize that the publication of hacked materials is protected by our First Amendment. It's protected by our First Amendment. It is journalism to publish the emails. And I think this is the problem of the kind of partisan tribalism that we have in the United States of people who see these leaks and they think like this, well, who does this benefit? Well, who would, who would want to commit this attack? They start thinking like they work at the CIA or the NSA. Like, who would want this? Ah, uh, Russia might have wanted this leak. China would have wanted this leak. This is, it, we have people out here who are programmed and thinking the way that the United States national security state would want them to think so that they already are helping our national security institutions discredit impactful reporting before it has a chance to even gain traction. So these emails, I think it's worth taking 30 seconds to defend collectively the emails 
regardless of whether uh, uh, an asset of Russian government had come anywhere near these emails, you know, even if they were 10 feet within helping WikiLeaks obtain these emails, they were published, WikiLeaks authenticated them, they had the right to distribute them, and what they showed us was information that was absolutely in the public interest. Because collectively, if you look at the whole set of documents, it depicted a culture within the Democratic Party that had anointed Hillary Clinton as the nominee of that party in order to ensure that no other candidate could come along and compete with her and take that nomination. It's not so much that they had rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders. They didn't expect Bernie Sanders to be as successful. It is that they had rigged the primary to ensure that Hillary Clinton had it easy on her way to the nomination. And as we saw in the emails, they were coming up against the reality that he was a formidable candidate who was exposing all of her flaws and and revealing why so many people did not like her and they were offended deeply. And so what we had in those emails exposed this culture that we're all still grappling with here because it's it, it technically it triumphed with Joe Biden's election. That neoliberalism ended up being the thing that won and defeated Donald Trump. And it, it, it ended up splitting the difference. You know, they, they divided people, they pushed out Bernie Sanders in 2020, and then they used that neoliberalism to beat right-wing proto-fascism in the Donald Trump and Donald Trump's campaign. Um, and and it's, you know, they 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 stand for empire as much as any president in the history of the United States does. Um, and they they ran to the right of Donald Trump. They always try to make Donald Trump seem like he wasn't a good person who could guard and and defend US empire, who could advance US empire's interests good enough. So they you know they 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 are intent to make Joe Biden's presidency restore U.S. empire to its uh, normal workings, its, its, its normal functions that, that, that we have come to understand and recognize over the last 20 to 30 years. Yeah, and there's this idea that Russia definitively hacked the DNC. And what I'll start with is, you know, there's a lot of evidence that that is not at all true. Uh, Ray McGovern, former CIA agent, talks about how even the leader of the CEO of CrowdStrike admitted in court that there is no evidence that 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 this information, the emails were exfiltrated. In other words, hacked. Maybe they were. Maybe maybe they weren't. I, I'm not sure. But I, the idea that just because they were hacked by Russia means they should not be published. You know, this this material that's extremely informative about our political figures that they rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders, that the DNC was essentially uh, a function of Hillary Clinton's campaign. This is major information. It's almost like people are angrier at the person who revealed this information than they are that our politicians are so corrupt. And last thing I'll say is, you know, even if it was Russia, you know, we reveal things about other people's governments, sometimes false information, and spread it to other to people in those countries all the time. I'm talking about spreading 
propaganda through organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy or Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, Voice of America. Uh, the CIA created a fake Twitter in Cuba or, uh, or something yeah. that resembled Twitter in Cuba to spread uh, information and disinformation about the Cuban government. And just as a thought experiment, imagine that the United States was revealing leaked information about Kim Jong-un to North Koreans, right? Well, would we expect North Koreans? Actually, we don't want to know that information. You're the bad guy for telling us the information about our allegedly corrupt government. And it's just, it's just so crazy that we're angry at the person for revealing the corruption rather than the corruption. And right. moving us forward here, you know, I just want to remind people that all that DNC stuff has not a goddamn thing to do with what Julian Assange is being charged with or or attempted to be extradited for. So, you know, we, we kind of talked about this already, but, you know, we're going to, we're nearing the end here. And I want to know, first of all, why, obviously, Obama understood this, right, that there is a danger in prosecuting Julian Assange. People generally think of Obama correctly as someone who prosecuted whistleblowers, but he elected to not take that further step to prosecute Assange or have him extradited. Why did the Obama administration not choose to do this? Yeah, so I, I'm i not sure. And I think this goes for both administrations. I'm not sure how involved uh, Donald Trump was in the decision to charge Julian Assange. I'm also not sure how involved Barack Obama was in the decision to decline to bring a prosecution against Julian Assange. But what we do know, based on some reporting in the mainstream press, was that Obama, uh, the, the Obama Justice Department, under Attorney General Eric Holder, declined to bring charges against Assange because of what they recognized, and for those who follow Assange coverage closely, they've heard this a lot, they believed they identified something called the New York Times problem. And I don't know if it's a problem. I think it's kind of a nice fail-safe to protect us all. But basically, if they were going to prosecute Assange, it would mean that they would be obligated to also charge editors or journalists at the New York Times who had worked on the documents because they'd be just as guilty of the crimes they were alleging against Julian Assange. So... They ultimately chose to back off and not pursue a case. Now, I don't think that we should say that, that, that they did nothing wrong in targeting Assange. This grand jury was impaneled in 2010, and it was set up to destroy this organization. They had something called a manhunting timeline that was revealed by Edward Snowden, in which we know that the Obama administration was tracking Assange's movements and they were pressuring governments not to help Assange to safety, and uh, they, you know, uh, he he sought asylum from or and uh, as far as the WikiLeaks organization goes, they were sending out requests to all the tech companies to collect people's records so, so that they could fish through them and and try and put together some kind of charges against the people who were working for WikiLeaks and who were associates of WikiLeaks. And so the government of, uh, under Obama was intent to 
do something to prosecute in a way of uh, guess for Pompeo, say it's fair for this case, this instant, and to avenge these leaks by bringing cases of people to make an example out of them. That's, that's what a lot of this war on whistleblowers is about, making an example out of people. But they backed away from it. And, and I think, you know, the one thing that I am really disappointed didn't happen was we didn't get a press conference where Attorney General Eric Holder stood before the microphone and said, we are dissolving this grand jury and it was wrong for us to target this dissident media organization and we could really have opened a can of worms if we continued with this. Um, We're going to leave this to fester so that the next administration can restart it and keep it going. Because that's what happened. Because Donald Trump's administration, the Justice Department under Attorney General Jeff Beauregard Sessions, who is an aggressively, uh, he, he hates leaks. He, I, I, I mean, there are a few people in the history, the recent history of the U.S. Senate that dislike leaks as much as Jeff Sessions, who were for things like passing kind of official secrets act legislation that we don't have in the United States, but exists in the United Kingdom. Um, and, and, and so he was for that and he was really, he was willing to aggressively go, uh, ramp up the leak investigation. When he was, uh, attorney general, he actually created a counterintelligence unit in the FBI that was dedicated to going after leaks and, and he, he charged Julian Assange and, after a pressure campaign by the CIA that was designed to force him out of the embassy with the help of Lennon Moreno, who just uh, had a colossally embarrassing defeat in the Ecuador election. Um, And um, I will congratulate him on his uh, total shellacking at the polls that his party went through because he absolutely deserves it. Um, for for what he's done to the country and um, and it shows you what you get for cozying up to U.S. empire. And uh, and so Julian Assange was expelled and arrested under Donald Trump's administration. And, and I think, you know, you know, the the thing that's crazy now with the Biden administration is the election of Joe Biden, I think, is owed to. Joe Biden uh, attaching himself to everything he thought was good about the Obama era and everything he wanted to sell to us as the antidote to Donald Trump from the Obama era, which are things that I don't actually necessarily believe are antidotes, but that's the way it was packaged. And now this thing that Obama got right it doesn't look like he's going to continue what Obama, the Obama Justice Department got right when it came to Assange. It looks like they are going to go down the path of allowing this extradition case to keep unfolding, even though they're losing. And it's important for us to be clear as we, as we come to the end of our conversation. The U.S. government is losing its case against Julian Assange right now in the British courts and it lost in the district court level, even though the district, 
judge believe that there were grounds to bring a case against Julian Assange, they're not going to, if they can't extradite him, they can't prosecute him in the United States. And so, you know, the Biden administration is taking a huge risk here, I believe. Um, you know, I, I don't really care about the health of the U.S. empire that much, but propaganda, propagandistically, you're really going to prosecute a journalist? You're really going to stand here and say you're going to take on China and Russia and you're going to allow a journalist to be prosecuted by the United States government? You're really going to try to extradite a publisher, which we know the Chinese government and or the Russians are going to want to use in order to discredit the United States government? You're really going to do that? I mean, I think like it undermines everything we hear. We've heard a lot of platitudes in the first weeks of Biden's administration about how they support freedom and uh, uh, freedom of media. Uh, Jen Psaki, um, the the spokesperson for the White House, who's the press secretary, uh, she's talking about freedom of media, something we need to continue to promote around the world. Well, drop the charges against Julian Assange if you want to do that. I say quit using the Espionage Act to target leakers who reveal information to journalists. Let Edward Snowden come back home to the United States. And also stop searching journalists at the U.S. border and seizing their electronic devices, which is something has been a a terrible problem and is connected to this attack on journalism in this case against Julian Assange. That was great, Kevin. And, you know, you pretty much just answered one of my big questions was what can we expect from Joe Biden? And, you know, I'll throw in, I, I don't have very high hopes for with regards to how he's going to pursue the Assange case. Joe Biden's on record calling Julian Assange a high tech terrorist. Uh, you know, they they still appear to be attempting to extradite him. You know, and I also don't want to let off Eric Holder, or Obama off the hook, because, of course, these people, you know, they're pra- they're pragmatists. They're all these two people, Holder and Obama, were also instrumental in assuring that the Bush-era war criminals, the torturers, were not prosecuted. So these are not heroes. They just understood that prosecuting Julian Assange was, again, going to be a propaganda nightmare for the U.S. empire. So maybe we can speak to how maybe Obama and Holder are smarter than Trump and Jeff Sessions and Mike Pompeo and maybe smarter than uh, Joe Biden as well. But, you know, you mentioned that last part about in that last section about the New York Times, how they knew they'd have the New York Times problem. So that surprises me because in terms of covering the extradition trial a few weeks ago, and for those who don't know, at least temporarily, a British judge denied the U.S. ability to extradite Julian Assange to the United States. But even in that case, you were one of the only people I saw really covering this, you and Richard Medhurst and a a, a collection of a few other journalists. Which is surprising to me because because so many other outlets reported on WikiLeaks findings. The, so many other outlets were reporting the revelations that WikiLeaks put out to the world. So I guess I'll close with what do you think explains this media silence about Julian Assange? Why do I have to go to you and Richard Medhurst and no disrespect to you two, you, you're exemplars of what real journalism is. But why is this not being reported much by the New York Times, Washington Post, or even 
more progressive outlets like I don't, I don't see a whole lot of this on democracy now or the intercept either so can you speak to why what do you think explains why this is such a forbidden topic to touch for many outlets in the u.s yeah and i think you understand the the personal conflict for me by a lot of these organizations refusing to commit journalists and and do regular reporting i I benefit greatly. I, mean, I don't have to compete against. I mean, if if they're out there doing this, I don't know how much of my reporting actually breaks through. I'm not sure how many people get to see. Uh, Edward Snowden was tweeting my coverage, and I've got Daniel Ellsberg reading my coverage, and uh, Glenn Greenwald is is saying, oh, "Follow this journalist," and I'm not sure if the New York Times or the Washington Post is is doing this extradition case justice, if, uh, if they recognize that they should be sharing the work of independent media over corporate press, I, I think they might be going to more mainstream sources to make their points about these cases. So there's that. But then I think it's important what you're asking is the culture of the media well first i do want to let you know that i don't think that there this is something that has just been an issue of julian assange because when i covered chelsea manning's case and i was at that court martial there were many days during what i think was one of the biggest military cases in recent history that i was one of five people that was there as media covering it. And those people weren't with any outlets we would know. Like there weren't household names that people think about when they think of news media. It was a person from Courthouse News. It was an independent journalist, Alex O'Brien. It was, who doesn't actually do this work anymore. Um, and it was, uh, uh, me, and then there was a, a friend of mine who was a sketch artist for the in court, Clark Stokely, who, who ended up doing a good book for OR Books. That's a graphic novel on the Chelsea Manning case. And, uh, it, and uh, I'm, I'm in it. I'm actually a sketch in the book. It's pretty, it, it's pretty nice. And then there was a guy from the Associated Press who was our newswire, and they're very good, and I'm glad he was there because that pushed out a report uh, on those days to all the different newspapers in the United States so that they could um, include coverage if they wanted. But no New York Times, no Washington Post. Where's CNN? And Actually, sometimes they'd send the CNN producer, and he would be falling asleep during court, and we'd have to wait the... The people at the Fort Meade military base where the tri the trial took place would have to wake him up because he's snoring during the proceedings and ask him to go out to his car if he was going to sleep. So he's not even paying attention to what's happening. So that's just to say that I think this culture goes beyond believing that Julian Assange isn't a journalist and not one of us. It goes in, it, it veers into general media malpractice of, of not caring, of being indifferent, of, of not thinking that this is going to sell in 
when when we when we do this story, we would rather we would rather cover Russiagate. We'd rather cover something that is related to Donald Trump, or we would rather cover something that gets our our, our tribes worked up. You know, like I I subscribe to the entire theory and writing and assessment of Matt Taibbi, who refers to it as hate ink of, of having a media system that has become, you know, not, I don't know if it works to call it polarized, but, but, but definitely where the, the camps in, in media, uh, the liberals, and then like the right wing media echo chamber definitely have their things that they want to deploy to their audiences in order to whip them up. And I think that within these institutions that identify like the people within them are mostly liberals. They don't really want to spend time on the Julian Assange case. It's just not something they care a whole lot about. And and, and, I, and I, and just to wrap up my comment, I think like that's, that's the issue is that um, it's, you know, I, there is that personal animosity towards Julian Assange. I used to think that it's just about him shaming them and, and exposing the fakeness and the, the fact that so many of our media institutions cover for power rather than cover power. But I think an aspect of it too is that there's that there's that commercial aspect. There's that fact that that this is not what they want to sell to their audiences. Yeah, well said. And it just seems like there is a lack of adversarial journalism, right? They they yeah. they all go, you know journalists are generally the ones that write for the Washington Post and New York Times. These are generally people who come from upper class backgrounds. They go to the the fancy journalism schools. They are very much of the same class of the people they're supposed to be covering, right? They all go to the same parties. They all want access, so you're not gonna, you don't want to rock the boat too much, and that's a problem. And that's, what, but on the flip side, it, it is uh, kind of good for you because you get to cover all these stories, and you're doing the real work, right? It's like you and Richard Medhurst. You mentioned Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, Jeremy Scahill. You know, the, you know, uh, Cy Hirsch. Right? If you want to uh, go back to a, a different era, Gareth Porter, Max Blumenthal, you know, I could, and Ben Norton, of course. But it's not a lot. Of, of course, your co-host Ronnie Akalik. But it's not a lot of people doing this work, and it's like they've left the lane open because of their absolute dereliction of duty. And you know, I think part of what you said is probably true that they're probably a little annoyed at Julian Assange because he's doing their job better than they are. I mean, he's do, he's doing their job more efficiently and at a, a more proficient level than any journalist who works for these mainstream outlets. So, And as we wrap, can I throw out something quickly? Oh yeah, absolutely. Sure. So, so, and I'll be, I'll be, I mean, I, we've been going for two hours and <laughs> I, I've enjoyed every bit of this conversation, but uh, a, a, a concrete example of this, it is in this case, Ellen Nakashima of uh, of the Washington Post is involved in doing national security journalism, went to the embassy, visited Julian Assange at the embassy, 
she went through the security checkpoint. Someone working for Undercover Global, this private security company that was working on behalf of the CIA or wider U.S. intelligence, it's somewhat unclear, although it has all the hallmarks of the CIA operation. Someone working as a contractor for this company took her cell phone battery and tried to tried to take it. She went back and got it. And so they did not succeed in, in, in stealing it, but they opened up her phone. So that's documented. We've heard nothing from Ellen Nakashima. She hasn't said anything. Stefania Morizzi, an amazing Italian journalist who has submitted Freedom of Information Act requests in Sweden, in the United Kingdom, and in the United States for records on the targeting of WikiLeaks um, and, and what they know about you know some of the machinations of the, the, the efforts to get him extradited to Sweden, ex, uh, etc. You know, she's fighting for the right of all of us to be able to request these documents and get these documents. She's speaking out. She was targeted. She visited Julian Assange. She was targeted. She's objecting. She's a witness in this case that's unfolding in Spain. There's a case where Julian Assange and his people filed um, uh, uh, there, there's now charges brought by a Spanish uh, court against David Morales, the director of UC Global, and she's involved in challenging it, but not a peep from Ellen Nakashima. You know why? Because if she becomes someone who challenges this, she's afraid she's going to step outside of this culture that she has become entirely indoctrinated in. And I remember Ellen Nakashima. I, I met her at the court-martial against Chelsea Manning. I, I ran into her at the trial. And she was somebody who would ask me questions about the case because there, there are mainstream journalists who would come up to me in private and they would ask me questions because they knew that I knew it like very, very well. And they would, I, I, I would help them clarify points. And, and so now today... Having been targeted, she and her organization won't even stand up for herself, even though she was attacked. I mean, she was targeted by a contractor supported by the U.S. government, and they won't say anything because they don't want to be associated with the Assange case. Right, and this is nothing new, this deference to power. I mean, go back to the period of time before the invasion of Iraq 2003. No one were bigger cheerleaders for that particular invasion. No one manufactured more consent than the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post. So, you know, we do have to be skeptical about mainstream reporters' journalism when covering the national security state, because generally it is not in their interest to rock the boat. But Kevin, this absolutely has been a great conversation. And before we sign off, I, I want to make sure I give you time to promote the incredible work that you're doing. So I'll, I'll start by saying you can find all of Kevin's journalism at shadowproof.com. Uh, but also you host a couple of shows that I'd like to talk about. One is the Dissenter Weekly program and also your the show that you co-host, Unauthorized Disclosure. So if you want to close out, like what are those two shows about? Uh, you know, What yeah. can people expect from them and where can people find any other work that I have not mentioned? And everyone's listening to a lot. There's a lot of things competing for people's attention. There's your show. So uh, the Dissenter Weekly is a collection of 
whistleblower stories from the past week, along with an update on Julian Assange's case and any other whistleblower cases that, that we're tracking, you know, reality winner remains in prison and uh, she didn't deserve to be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. So I continue to follow her while she's in prison. And uh, this, for your, for, for the listeners of your show, I, I started Dissenter Weekly because I wanted a program that considered a what whistleblowing against empire was like and wasn't just focused on partisan whistleblowers like, let's say, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who was the Ukraine call whistleblower, who doesn't really need our support. He's going to be fine. You know, whether the disclosure is legitimate or not, he doesn't really need us to come to his defense. He's going to have people in Congress and the New York Times will publish an op-ed by him. He's going to be fine. So I started this show back then when the Ukraine call whistleblower was was a thing that everyone was focused on. And of course, that led to the first impeachment of Donald Trump. And then the Unauthorized Disclosure Show, I'm in the eighth year of doing the podcast. I think it's one of the longest running shows on the left that, that we've been doing. Um, and and so everybody has their podcast now. But I mean, I think we were kind of ahead of the curve a little bit. And uh, we, we've kept it going. And it's a great space for having people on who can dissent and, and challenge a lot of uh, of the conventional thinking and things that just, you know, are, are, are not necessarily allowed to be said in news media. We like to create space for people who are under attack. And right now, when you see YouTube demonetizing a lot of these left people who are being told that they can't have those videos monetized because they, they include controversial content or views, I think it's important for us to have these spaces, especially during Joe Biden. I mean, it's harder than ever. I think it's why it's important for you to do what you do as well, because uh, it was easy under Donald Trump to challenge the U.S. government. It's harder to get people to feel that adversarial under President Joe Biden, because everyone feels like he's supposed to be warm and fuzzy and we're all back to normal. Right, Kevin, and thank you so much for all that work that you do. And I'll throw in that that I've been a longtime listener to Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm also a big fan of Rania Kalik's videos. She puts out she puts out these like, you know, anywhere from two to ten minute videos. They they're very critical of U.S. Empire, but also they're they're often quite humorous as well. And I encourage people to to watch those as well. Follow all of Kevin's work at Shadowproof, at Dissenter Weekly, again, at, at Unauthorized Disclosure. And uh, Kevin, we really appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for all you do.